Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Do you know what Litbreaker is? It's an advertising network online. You can advertise on a bunch of great sites in the culture sphere. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Litbreaker is for people who like uh, art, books, movies, music, whatever. And uh, you want to find those people online? You can advertise with Litbreaker. Just go to litbreaker.com and check it out. Uh, you can advertise on sites like The Nervous Breakdown, The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, Electric Literature, The Believer Tumblr. You name it. There's a bunch of great sites, dozens of great sites, and you can advertise on all of them. Or you can pick the ones that you want and advertise piecemeal. It's user-friendly. Check it out, litbreaker.com. It's an advertising network. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is the result of infinite causality. This is the way we have chosen to spend our time. Hello. How are you? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. I appreciate you listening. Atticus Lish is my guest. His debut novel, Preparation for the Next Life, uh, is available now from Tyrant Books, a great independent press out of New York City. Uh, this is a novel that has been getting uh, a ton of buzz. Perhaps you've heard about it. Perhaps you've been reading the reviews. They have been uh, uniformly glowing, to say the least. Uh, also very pleased to note that Preparation for the Next Life is the official November pick of the TNB book club, the nervous breakdown book club, the nervous breakdown.com is uh, my online culture magazine, a literary community. It has its own book club. We feature one book a month and uh, this month it's preparation for the next life. Uh, you can join the TNB book club over at the nervous breakdown.com. Uh, just go over there and click on book club in the menu bar. It's nine 99 a month. It's less than the cost of a book. Uh, per month and you get a brand new book delivered to your door every 30 days. And then, uh, best of all, uh, you get to, uh, listen to me talk to the author right here on this program. So it's a very, uh, enriching experience for everybody. <laughs> uh, yeah. So before we get going with Atticus, I thought I would read some more mail 
It's been coming in uh, frequently lately, and I, I always like to uh, hear from listeners. Uh, this li- uh, this letter comes from a listener named Ashley. She writes, Hi, Brad. I just signed up for premium. Your constant droning on about it worked wonders. Just just joking. It's been on a perpetual to-do list of mine for a while now, and I'm happy to have finally crossed it off. Lately, I've been completely hooked on your show and was wondering if you've ever thought to transcribe a best of of your podcast that could organize into general topics. I recently read Dear Sugar by Cheryl Strayed, and I'm not a, quote, Dear Sugar type of person, but it was a great book. Not that I'm supposing that you are in any way an advice columnist, but uh, the book was organized really well, very clearly. And over the course of Cheryl's time writing for the column, you could feel how her thoughts and positions changed as she took in more of her readers' letters. I wonder if you went back to the beginning of this podcast, whether you would see your thoughts morph and change throughout the discussions. Topics as heavy as mortality to as light as a college could be included. Anyway, you shouldn't downplay your own voice in the show because I think it's a big part of what keeps people listening. I haven't heard the majority of authors you interview, but I'm always interested. And because uh, you're always curious about your listeners, uh, I lived in Houston most of my life and was part of a lively artistic community there. There's more to Texas than a red state, though having said that, I don't live there anymore. I listen to your show when I'm cooking and in the morning over coffee. Your show is one of my go-to podcasts, and I've recommended it to many, many others since finding it. Cheers, Ashley. So uh, thanks, Ashley. I don't know about this transcribing. Who's going to do the transcribing? I'm sure as hell not. Gonna have to outsource that. And I think it's also a frightening prospect uh, to to put all of this down on paper. I have no idea what I've said. It could be terrifying to have it uh, written down. It's one thing to have it on tape or uh, you know on digital. You know, having been digitally recorded, it's another thing to have it in print. But I am I, I am kind of curious uh, about may, whether, you know, your question about whether or not my thoughts have morphed. It is interesting to consider that perhaps, uh, I mean, in, inevitably I've changed over the past three years. Uh, I, I guess I wonder in, in what ways. And is it evident in this show somewhere? So. And, and no, I'm not an advice columnist. <laughs> Dear Listy, no, I can't do that. It's not, uh, it's not my gift, but, uh, anyway, I appreciate you listening. I appreciate you signing up for premium and I appreciate you writing in, uh, for everyone else listening. If you want to write to me, the address is letters at other PPL.com. That's letters at other PPL.com. Feel free to send word. Let me know what you think. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. 
And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So uh, let's get going with the main event. Uh, I'm really excited to share this interview with you. Atticus Lish, once again, is the guest, and his debut novel is called Preparation for the Next Life, available now from Tyrant Books. Uh, Really enjoyed talking with Atticus. I think you're going to like what he has to say, and uh, let's, let's hear from him. This is Atticus Lish. His debut novel, Preparation for the Next Life, is out there now from Tyrant Books. I live in Brooklyn, so I'm, we're talking from my apartment in Brooklyn in the Sunset Park District, and uh, I'm in the kitchen of the apartment, and I can see the dishes in the sink. Well, I, I mean, I should, uh, I should start, too, by congratulating you on the great reception um, that your novel has gotten. You've got to be thrilled. This is a good moment for you. I am absolutely thrilled. Uh, my family's thrilled. My my friends are really happy. Uh, a lot of smiles around here right now. We're all very happy. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That New York Times review. It can't get better, right? I mean, does it get better than that? I don't think it can get better based on what I've heard from other people. I actually have not read the review. I um, I don't read any of the reviews. Uh, I, I'm, my family and friends are really happy to, about the best that we've gotten, and they're thrilled, so I can tell from them that it's all good. But I, I, I'm enforcing a news blackout on myself. You don't read the reviews? Uh, no, I don't. And it's not that I'm not really grateful for them. Of course I am. But uh, I, I just wanted to insulate myself from what's happening out there. Uh, really because I want to keep my concentration. I'm working on a second book, and I, I don't want anything to, to – to, I don't want the outside world in my head. That's, yeah, that's admirable discipline. I think if I got a review like that in the New York Times, I would have it, like, tattooed on my back. <laughs> I, well, well, but then I couldn't I, see I, it, and then I couldn't see it. Maybe that would <laughs> – I was going to say, you know, <laughs> someone would still have to read it to you. It would have to be yeah. tattooed backwards on my chest, and then I could just look in the mirror and just read it. <laughs> Well, trust me, a big part of me would like to do the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe one day down the road, like when you're retired and sitting on the front porch or something, you can you can go back and read. But it, it's a good review. I'll, I'll tell you that much. Thank you so much. Yeah. Okay. So um, I got to let's start with the obvious. All right. Your name is Atticus, which uh, is yeah. the name of the protagonist of one of America's most beloved and uh, most revered novels. And your last name is Lish. And your father is Gordon Lish, who I think a lot of people in the literary world are well aware of. Uh, so you're coming into the game with, uh, something of a burden of expectation. Do you feel that? Well, I did not actually feel that. And the reason, I mean, I, now I think I feel uh, some expectations now that, uh, there's, the book has been well received, but when I was writing this book, um, you have to understand that I was completely isolated from, uh, from, really from family, from uh, any, um, any of the significance that my name might have had. Uh, I, you know, I was just alone. Uh, it was the only, I, sort of me and my wife uh, living, in a, living together, uh, isolated from almost everybody. I mean, coming to New York was a very uh, alienating experience. Uh, we didn't know anyone. 
we have gradually made very good friends and we're grateful for that. But when we first came here, I think a lot of people, as a lot of people do, I think we just felt at sea. And uh, it was during those days that I was write, writing the book. I, I didn't have any connection to um, to anyone like you, for example. I mean, this is, you know, it, it's I've had these conversations with with literary people, people who are interested in, in writing. This is all recent. This is all new to me. Uh, when I first came here, there was none of that. So there were also no expectations. Okay. And like, where did you come to New York from? You sound like you might be from the East Coast or from New York. Well, I did grow up in New York, um, and uh, where we came to New York from was we'd lived a year abroad in China. Uh, this is my wife and me. Um, we had uh, taught English out in China for a year, and you know, after that, we didn't know exactly what to do next, and we just thought, well, it's kind of a fantasy to move to New York. Let's do it. Uh, we'd never lived in New York together, and so we came to New York. What were, and you were in China teaching ESL. Do you speak Chinese? Uh, yes, I do speak Chinese, and that was why we decided we wanted to see the world. And because I spoke Chinese, I felt that we could probably survive in China. So uh, we got online and we found uh, a job teaching English in China. We found it over the internet, and uh, my wife and I just sold what we had and got on a plane and <laughs> got our shots and went to China. <laughs> Damn. Okay. That's cool. And you, you learned China as a kid or Chinese as a kid? Uh, yes, I did. I, uh, I learned Chinese at Phillips Academy Andover, I, a boarding school uh, near Massachusetts. And incidentally, not that far from where my wife is from. She's from a, a town in Massachusetts. And uh, we met a few years after that when we were both 18. But, um, yes, I, I learned Chinese in, in high school. Mm -hmm. Wow. It just seems, the, from the outside looking in, I, know, I don't know a word of Chinese, but I feel like it, it seems like it would be a hard language to learn. It, it is a deceptively easy language in the beginning. Uh, the reason for that is because it doesn't have conjugations and declensions. Uh, I had some experience with French before that, and I had to fulfill a foreign language requirement in high school, and I wanted to not have to memorize the conjugations and declensions, so that made Chinese very attractive. And um, I also liked kung fu movies, you know. And I was, <laughs> was into into Jackie Chan and Bruce Lee. So I uh, I signed up for Chinese, and it turned out that, uh, that I just loved it. So um, when you love something, it doesn't seem that hard. Uh, I it, it seemed exotic. It seemed. Uh, uh, mysterious and exciting for that reason. So I was heavily into it and I wasn't conscious that it was difficult, but I will say that later, much later down the line, I'm a Chinese translator by profession now. And, uh, I have found the Chinese language to be increasingly hard to work with. Um, the more you learn, the more you find out that it's difficult to say what you want in it. It, it doesn't give you a rule book to go by. You start missing all those conjugations and declensions. And, uh, and so there are challenges that seem to emerge later with it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It's like the more you know, the more you realize how little you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yes, it is. It like yeah. keeps, it keeps receding from you. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So childhood, you said you grew up in New York City. Yes, I did. Okay. What was that like? Like what part of town were you in? Uh, obviously, we know what your dad did. What was your mom up to? Like what was, uh, what was your life like as a kid in New York? I was a privileged kid. I grew up in 50, I was born on East 56th Street uh, near the Queensboro Bridge. 
And uh, when I was around uh, in first grade, I we moved uptown to 90, into the 90s. I'm going to keep the precise address to myself because to protect the privacy of family members. But we um, we moved uh, to the Upper East Side to a uh, a luxury location, and um, I went to a a private boys' school uh, near there. And um, I, you know, my my upbringing was probably a lot like Little Lord Fauntleroy's. Um, (laughs) Did you you have the haircut? I I don't know what haircut he has. Maybe I did. It's like a page boy. It's sort of like I think it's in like the little like shoulder length flip or something, or like just below the ears or something. (laughs) Okay, well I don't I don't actually remember, but I would bet yes, probably I did, and and so. You know, I, what I really wanted was a mullet, but you never get what you want. And, <laughs> you should have um, grown up where I grew up, man. That would have been easy. You could have had one. <laughs> well, there, you know, um, yeah, maybe. No, I mean, you know, trust me. I'm from Indiana. It was, uh, it was, it was the cut. <laughs> yeah, that was like, the cut. Like well, rat tails and mullets. It was like normal, you know. You know, I like all that stuff. And uh, and by the way, I do have family on my mom's side in uh, Illinois, and I've spent some time in the Midwest. I got some other relations who were in Missouri. So as I got older and I got out of the city, I, I fortunately got to see what America was actually like as opposed to New York, which is such a different environment from the rest of our country. Oh, yeah. No, I have a friend. Uh, I have a friend who grew up in the city uh, on the Upper West Side. And he and I met when we were in college out in Colorado, and I remember him saying that he had friends who had really never been off of the island of Manhattan all that much, like maybe a trip to Florida to see grandparents or something, but like, <laughs> like that was it. Yeah. And so like they would come, you know, they, then they would come out to Colorado to visit him, and it would be like this really like, you know, it would be like frightening almost, the open space and the, uh, <laughs> the frontier. Too much space. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, right. Well, you know, my favorite movie as a kid was Escape from New York. So what does that tell you? you know? <laughs> and now that and now you're back. Shit, it sucked you back in. Uh, I, that's right. But yeah. you're. But I feel like you're kind of a conquering hero now. I mean, you know, you came back and you published a, a book, and it's getting ready. Oh. Yeah, I mean, you got to feel good. Well, about that's it. a very nice way to put it. I everything's good. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. So okay. So growing up, uh, Upper East Side, Little Lord Fauntleroy. You're getting like a private school education. Um, yeah. You know, and then your your dad is what working at uh, Esquire. Like, what was that? What, what stage of his career was he at in this point? Well, uh, I remember him working at Esquire, uh, and um, then he was at Knopf at Random House, I believe. And, and, and you know, um, I should yeah. interrupt you just because some listeners might actually not know uh, who Gordon Lish is, but your father uh, is a famous yeah. editor. He worked with Raymond Carver. Um, I mean, you could tell you could tell the story better than I, but we should give people some context. Sure. Uh, I'm not sure how well I can tell the story. I mean, as you can imagine, sometimes, you know, the, 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 the public person is not always something that the family members see. So um, I didn't really know all that much about what uh, Gordon did. Uh, I saw him go off in the morning wearing a tweed jacket, and, uh, you know, I knew he was an editor, uh, and a writer, and uh, that he taught, and um, but I didn't know much about the details of his career or who or who he worked with. I would hear names, um, I would hear the names of writers. Of course, I heard Raymond Carver's name, and I um, and Barry Hanna. Uh, I read uh, Barry Hanna's book Ray, 
which um, was on the bookshelf. I mean, it was a great bookshelf at home. And I read a lot of those books. Um, so I, I'm actually not able to, um, to say much more about Gordon, really. I don't kind of have the um, same picture of him that an outsider might have, if, if that makes any sense at all. I just knew him at the dinner table, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I get that. I mean, that is kind of a. It's got to be a weird schism when you're uh, one of your parents or a family member is a public person, and you have all these people who have this kind of like perception of them that they get mm-hmm. from from books or interviews or their computer screen, or or uh, you know, in lesser instances, probably their imagination, <laughs> where they you right, know, imagine right. the person to to be a certain way and then come at you with that stuff, and you're like, uh, you know, I just I just eat dinner with the guy, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is that uh, I think a lot of people I know, whenever I get into this conversation, whether it's uh, uh, you know on this show or in uh, my personal life, is that I think there are very few kids who grow up with an intimate knowledge of their parents' professional lives. There tends to be um, a divide. Like a lot of, and I think it's probably healthy. Like a lot of parents don't want their kids to be involved in the minutia of their of their uh, professional lives. They're they're kids. There's plenty of time for them to worry about professional stuff and like the trappings of adulthood, you know? So, um, I, I still don't have any idea what my dad really did on a daily basis. <laughs> you know, like, uh, okay. I don't know. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, do you, do you feel similarly or have this sim- a similar sense? Well, yeah, I mean, I definitely, I, um, I, I didn't uh, work alongside my parents. I mean, some kids do, you know, I, you know, you'll see, um, uh, you know, a lot of working guys will sometimes bring a son or a younger relative along to work with them. People will be brought along into the business sort of like an apprentice. Right. And um, Fam- family businesses I, do that, you know. Like right, some, right. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, you know, if, you're da- if your parent is working at some company, you know, some sort of company, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem to happen as much. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Okay. Probably not. But I, I will say that I did, you know, I haven't talked about my mom. My mom was a graphic uh, artist, and this was in the days before computers. And so uh, I would see her with the paste-up boards. She worked at home. She went freelance, and she would be uh, pasting up type and doing layout and pasting up type and photographs with extreme uh, care uh, to get everything arranged on the page. And she would... Uh, paste things down using rubber cement and um, do everything by hand that now is done by computers. So I, I did actually see her, uh, or, uh, you know, I see it. I saw her at work. Did you, uh, did you get any of that? Do you have any visual art uh, talent? Well, uh, what I, I draw pictures. I've, I've always drawn. I, I do that for fun and um, I probably get that through her. Yeah. Okay. And then did you have any siblings? I do. I have uh, a brother and uh, two sisters. They are all my uh, my father's uh, children from another marriage uh, before my mom. So they're half okay. siblings. Okay. And but you yeah. grew up with them, like me, or no? Okay. No, I did not. I was I was raised as an only child. Okay. Um, and then you said you uh, you went to a private school in, uh, on the Upper East Side, and then you went off to Phillips Academy for high school. That's correct. Uh, and what was that like? Like, were you happy to go? I, I, let's see here. I, I, you know, I, looking back, I really enjoyed uh, Phillips Academy. I, I'm grateful for it. I had a, a, 
I, I get memories of it. I have memories of uh, my teachers, uh, people that I really uh, have affection for. And, um, and also a lot of the young people that I met there, the other students were great. Um, probably, uh, it was a very positive experience. It was, I mean, you know, I, one thing was I, I got to meet people from other backgrounds. I'd meet, uh, you know, uh, young guys from, um, from New York who came from the Bronx or came from, um, you know, from, um, from uptown. And, uh, so, you know, that was, that expanded me culturally. That was good for me. And I was grateful for their friendship. And so was this like, uh, I'm like, I always, whenever I hear of like, uh, East coast boarding schools, I'm always picturing like a dead poet society. Like everyone's wearing coats and ties and uh, how, yeah. how formal was it? Was that what, was that what it was like? No, it, it wasn't formal like that. I think you could have found that there. I think, um, you know, there, you know, you probably could have joined some kind of singing group or something that wore those outfits, but, uh, the dead poet society look, I really, I'd say that my elementary school was much more like that. Um, we did have blazers and, uh, on Fridays we, we wore them. We had a school crest. Um, we, uh, we sang Episcopalian hymns on Friday. Um, that was much more dead poet society looking, but uh, in uh, at Phillips Academy, I, you know, it was uh, it felt fairly egalitarian. I think that there were people from a lot of different uh, backgrounds. I think they uh, and and that was really good. I mean, you could have found elitist kids at that school. They're they're certainly there. Uh, I think I naturally shunned them, and maybe they probably shunned me too. But I, I um, but I found it very egalitarian. So I liked it. Yeah. Okay. And, so, and I forgot to ask you too, because uh, just to dial back on your childhood a little bit, because this is kind of a fun anecdote, but um, Don DeLillo ripping you off, that happened, <laughs> right? Well, uh, it, what he did was he, I had written some kind of a, uh, a little journal, a story, uh, you know, it was probably about three pages long. I, I think I, I went and saw a movie of a, um, an animated movie of J.R.R. Tolkien's J.R.R. Tolkien's, uh, I, I want to see The Hobbit or something like that. This was long before um, a, a subsequent movie that they made, which I haven't seen. But back then, there was this great animated movie. And I remember the beginning of it. It had uh, this red sky. And in silhouette, they showed uh, an ancient battle between uh, the monsters and the um, and, uh, you know, I guess the good guys or something, these knights. And, you know, as a kid, this left a, an enormous impression on me. So I, I wanted to create my own uh, story like that. And so I, I, I think that's what was in my head. And I drew up a little, uh, you know, uh, illustrated a little story and drew, wrote up a little story and put some drawings in it. So I believe my father must have passed the passed this on to Don DeLillo and Don DeLillo, I think from what I've, from having read his work is very interested in child language uh, acquisition or something like that. Uh, I, I think he, he's, interested, I, I, he's interested in a lot of things. He's such a, he's such a big brain. It seems like. Yes, he definitely is a big brain, but I, I think the, uh, the interest in language uh, comes through in the book where he uses that, uh, the book, the names. And so I think that's why he wanted to, to, uh, to borrow it. And, you know, I'm honored that he did it. I don't feel ripped off. But yeah, I, I, you know, I, I just, you're I mean, kidding. I know. I would love, I mean, I, I wish he would rip me off today. You know, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. You know, <laughs> please immortalize me. Um, please. Yeah, go ahead. Make me famous. Right. Right. 
So that's cool. Okay, so that you enjoy your high school, like uh, you don't have uh, any kind of pronounced uh, like adolescent uh, freak out or anything like that. You seem fairly well adjusted. Uh, actually, full disclosure, I, uh, I, um, I, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a happy-go-lucky guy now, but uh, you know, I, I I actually did kind of melt down um, when I was a kid. I, you know, I mean, probably starting when I was around. 16, 17, uh, I, I started going off the rails. Uh, it's, it's not Phillips Academy's fault. <laughs> I mean, it was me. Um, and I, I got a little out of control for a couple of years. You know, I, I, yeah. Well, like, what do you yeah, doing? Like, this is a, like the boarding school stuff. Like, what were you doing? What were you up to? I, um, I didn't really get up to much of anything until after I was got out of boarding school. Uh. But um, I, I had kind of a, you know, I, I, I don't want to talk about it too much. I, I, what I will tell you is I got in a little bit of trouble and I just, my life was going off the rails and I, I ended up dropping out of college. Um, where were, I don't where, think were you, where were you at? Harvard of all places. Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah, you, you see, so you had the grades coming out of Phillips. You get to Harvard, and then just I, I got to Harvard, and you know, I, I don't really think it was the right place for me. Uh, I'm not sure. What, I mean, honestly, I don't think college was the right place for me. I, <laughs> I, I yeah, and it was just so I started to. Um, I what kind of trouble did I get in that I can. Wait, was I mean, it nothing. like substance? Yeah. Was it substance abuse? Were you just fucking off and not going to class? Was it a combination? I mean, you don't have to get well, into the nitty gritty if you don't want to, but just like ballpark. No, I, I, um, neither of those actually. I, uh, I've never really, uh, had much of an interest in, um, you know, in getting high. Um, I, uh, or drinking. Um, I, I think drinking can be fun, uh, in the right way. And I, that wasn't it. I, uh, in fact, I, I don't think I even touched alcohol back then. I, um, I got into some fights. Um, I uh, I guess I was uh, was angry, you know. And I uh, about, do you know do you know what about, or is it just like a general anger? Or... Uh, I'm gonna leave that in the past. I'm not gonna get into it um, if that's okay. Yeah. I, not, not to be coy with you, but just you know, it's it's ancient history. Right, 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 right. So okay, so you you uh, you drop out of Harvard. Yeah. And then what? Uh, I went and lived in. Uh, I rented a room in Queens and um, didn't know what to do with myself. Um, I got a, I worked on loading a truck, a uh, Snapple truck here and there and uh, worked a uh, counter help in a fast food restaurant and tried to decide what my next move in life would be. And then I signed up for the military. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And you know, it makes some sense because, uh, that you have done this kind of work, you know, like loading trucks and did you say working a fast food job? Uh, yeah, yeah. I actually enjoyed it very much. I, I worked at um, Wong's Boston, which is a Chinese fast food restaurant located in the downtown Crossing Mall uh-huh. in Boston. Uh-huh. And I had a great time doing that. I, I lived in Chinatown in Boston at that time. And I lived in an immigrant apartment. Uh, that's really what it is. It's, a, it's an apartment that the landlord, who is Chinese, had divided up into cubicles so that about eight people could rent from it, I believe. I was one of them. It cost me $100 a month. Uh, and it was the basis for the, the for the, my description of such an apartment in the book. 
Yeah, I was going to say, because the reason it makes, uh, you know, I alluded to, I was like, oh, it makes sense that you would have done this work is because that shows up in your novel and, um, yeah. you know, in, in, in great detail. And it, in, it seems like knowing detail. So it would make sense that you've had some personal experience doing this kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah. And then the decision to go into the military, you know, seems unconventional, particularly for a guy who was private schooled and raised on the Upper East Side. That's not a normal uh, trajectory. Right, right, right. It was a, um, it was not the normal track. I, uh, I, so it was in my time of not knowing what to do where I picked up a book at the lot at, um, at Barnes and Noble. Uh, it was, uh, Rogue Warrior, the memoir of Richard Marcenko, who was a Navy SEAL. And I happened to read this book and it just made the military seem like a life of adventure where you could just live to the fullest. And that was very exciting to me. So that was really why I signed up. Okay. And so, and how do you feel about it now in retrospect? Well, obviously there is more to the military than just having a great time. Um, (laughs) No shit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, I was very fortunate uh, in that I sort of got to have my cake and eat it too. What I mean by that is I signed up, uh, I went off to boot camp and which I love, by the way, I absolutely was the happiest guy coming out of Paris Island. Um, I was thrilled, uh, got married on boot. Why why did you like boot camp? I mean, and and then I guess like to tie it, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, but I I also want to say like to tie it to something, uh, we were talking about moments ago with regard to anger, like did the military give you a way to like channel that? Like if you had anger issues or whatever, you know, uh, I, I, I think that the best thing about boot camp for me was, as silly as it sounds, is I got to get myself in decent shape. And, you know, I, I've been in, I was in terrible condition. I was, um, and I wasn't happy about it, you know? I, and so when I found boot camp working for me, I mean, you don't really get to gaze at yourself in the mirror very much in boot camp, but, I happened to walk by a piece of glass at one point and I couldn't believe what I saw after being there a couple of weeks. I could see my ribs, which was a first. And, um, I'd been a well-nourished young man before then. Right. And, uh, were, were, you know, were my, you heavy? Were, you uh-huh. heavy, were you a heavy kid or, Oh, Lord. Yes. I mean, at that point I, I was a pasta eating fool living in Queens. I, I probably, I'm five eight, and I was walking around at like one eighty or one eighty five or something, and it wasn't good weight. I was a porky little little guy, and uh, and and anyway, you know, I had a I had a couple of drill instructors to say, you know, we're going to kick your fat butt in here, and I was like, bring it, you know, I, I was happy, you know, <laughs> well, you do know, me this, a favor. No, this is something I always uh, I often think about is like because uh, I'm a person who has to exercise. I'm one of those, you know, like I have to do stuff in order to keep my brain mm-hmm. working properly. And, I'm totally with you. Yeah. yeah, like I don't understand how people. Like w- one thing that really amazes me is when somebody is really out of shape and doesn't do anything to like maintain or work on their body at all, and yet they're mm-hmm. they're extremely mentally sharp and well adjusted and happy go lucky. Like I don't understand how that happens. Like I could never do that. I would be uh, miserable if I were carrying a lot of bad weight or uh, just you know eating the wrong things and feeling like crap and not and not doing anything and just being completely inert i don't know how people manage lives like that you know lives like that i you know i, I just for myself i i couldn't agree more it just really improved my quality of life once i uh got myself squared away it just it meant a lot yeah hell yeah and that was the big thing coming out it wasn't like learning how to be a soldier and like using weapons and whatnot it was more like 
you got in shape, you were feeling better about yourself and you had maybe some structure and direction. Uh, all of that. Definitely. I mean, um, the, you know, the thrill of shooting an M16 kind of wore off pretty fast. Uh, I would say that, um, I'm, I'm, I definitely found out I'm not a born soldier by any means. I, there are people who, who are, and you can immediately sense the difference. There are people who really find an identity in the military. Uh, and I wasn't one of those people. I, um, I think it, I, I found that, uh, you know, I, I clearly, my identity is something else. I mean, if, if I didn't, I never bonded to the Marine Corps, you know, some guys, as soon as they can, they go get the bulldog tattoo. I never did that. Uh, I never oh, wait, felt the, like the I what tattoo the bulldog, you know, the Marine Corps bulldog oh, tattoo. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I never did anything like that. I mean, I got a cousin, uh, he was the Lance corporal when I was going in and, um, you know, I mean, he's, he's a Marine. I'm not, I, I went through the Marine Corps, but I, I'm not a Marine. You know what I mean? Yeah, I get it. And you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by macho men, uh, and like and masculine ritual and like, you know, cause I'm, I'm a guy, uh, you know, I I would would not be interested in shooting a gun, for example. Like the military didn't cross my mind when I was younger. Uh, I've never really been in a fight. <laughs> you know, like uh, I don't know what you call me, but I'm the opposite of like a warrior. You know, uh, and and you know, take the military out of it. Like you look at like other just other kinds of uh, you know types of guys and like masculine rituals, like dudes who are like really into motorcycles and get into that, or guys who are into like uh, MMA and you know what I'm saying, like. I guess it's always a fascination to me, and there's something interesting to me about uh, men who gravitate towards that stuff and find uh, comfort in it, or I guess they're just enthused about it. It's just, uh, I guess it's just different different strokes for different folks, but uh, I don't know. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that, or I guess I would pose it as a question. Like, why do you think certain men are born warriors? Why do you think certain guys gravitate towards that kind of stuff and get the bulldog tattoo and, and want that connection? Well, I, there are a couple of reasons. I mean, you know, some guys uh, have the bad upbringing and the military represents, uh, you know, um, a, a real positive step after what they've been through. And so they see the future, they see uh, joining and belonging and meaning and um, so that's why it works for them. Definitely, that's a that's a type that you see in the military for sure. Uh, you get guys who are also, you know, um, the, uh, the 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 recruiting poster type. You know, they're they're super athletes. Uh, they, you know, they're they're born to 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 you know to be Marines or Navy SEALs or something. They're you know guys who are just amazing physical specimens who who had the drive to, um, uh, to do that kind of thing. Uh, you know, there can be different reasons, uh, pulling you towards that. Um, I, obviously I think with guys who are real fighters, real warriors, um, I think that, uh, there's something special driving them. I think that, uh, maybe it's anger. Uh, who knows? Because you have to go through a lot of discomfort and, live a hard life compared to what uh, other people put up with. You know, I mean, a lot of people think why on earth would you, somebody want to go to hell week, you know, at, um, you know, a Navy SEAL boot camp? Why would anybody do that? I mean, the mother of a Navy SEAL 
uh, Marcus Luttrell of um, Lone Survivor. In the documentary on Lone Survivor, she says, when I heard about what my son was doing for Hell Week, I couldn't understand why anyone would volunteer for that. Right. So maybe it's a bit of a mystery to, if it's a bit of a mystery to his own mom, you know, I, it may just be one of those things that nobody really can answer. Well, and it's all, but it's also like social confirmation. I mean, once you get in there and there's a bunch of people doing it, you know, yeah. it makes it a little bit easier to like, uh, justify it to yourself. It, if it was just you alone in hell week, you'd probably be like, fuck this. <laughs> you know, like, well, that's a very good point. I, in, in fact, I think that's the heart of it. I think, uh, guys who excel as soldiers, soldiering is a group phenomenon. It's not James Bond alone. It's, it's a group of guys who, uh, are able to do more because of their bond with each other, then they'd be able to do individually. It's, you know, a lone survivors, a great case study in this. I mean, well, you or, know, well, I was thinking of Restrepo too. Yeah. that, that documentary where I, you know, you really see the, yeah. uh, the bond, the brotherly bond. And then I also think of the work of Chris Hedges, um, mm-hmm. in that book, war is a force that gives us meaning. I don't know if you ever read oh, that. Yeah. Oh yes, I like, did. That's one, mm-hmm. one of my, one of my favorites, you know, like it explained war to me, uh, on both sides of the coin in a way that, I'd never really had it explained to me. It made it make sense, or at least make more sense. Absolutely. Uh, that book had a huge impact on me. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, you, you, I mean, especially when you're out in like, I mean, I don't, did you ever see combat? No, no, not at all. I, I was in during peacetime, and for full disclosure, so that there's no confusion here, I was in during 1995 to 1996, a year and a half. I did not do my full four-year commitment. In fact, it would have been an eight-year commitment with the four years of inactive reserve that would would have come after it. I got an administrative separation from the military uh, after a, only a year and a half. And uh, I was honorably discharged, but I, I got the ADSEP for family reasons. And um, and so, yeah, what, what, you know, what happened? You, yeah. just, you, you had to bow out? Uh, I, I'm going to just, you know, kind of leave it at that. I, you know, I... As I said, I just got the ad up. I got out early, which, um, you know, which was fine. You know, uh, I'm not, uh, I don't miss, I don't feel that I've missed the chance to uh, pursue that career. You're like, uh, you're, I like my, you're like, mm-hmm. I got, I got my body fat percentage down into the single digits. I'm out of here. Like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess maybe it sounds like that. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> uh, but no, but you learn stuff. And like, this is something that I've noticed among military veterans and guys who have been through. Um, a military experience, whether it includes combat or not, but there is a rigor uh, to that lifestyle, you know, obviously, uh, you know, and a selflessness and a discipline and just a difficulty that whenever I see them out in the private sector, you know, usually post-service, there is a kind of uh, calm or what's the word of like just a forbearance, like they're tough, like shit doesn't phase you once you've been through that. Uh, in quite the same way it might phase other people who have not, you know, like getting up at the crack of dawn. Like I think of my cousin who um, and his wife, both of whom were in the military, like they get up at 430 and like go jogging every morning and then, <laughs> and then commute, commute like an hour and a half to work like one way and then home again. Like they do shit that would drive me up the wall and that would frankly like just like obliterate me and they're not even phased. And it's because I think they've been through this uh, military experience where it was tougher. Uh, well, definitely military life is um, is can be a butt kicker. I mean, some of those mornings waking up and uh, you know the lights come on, it, it, it was very painful. 
but uh, it would be easy for me to mythologize uh, how that's uh, affected me as a person. You know, I'm I'm not really tough at all. I mean, you know, my neighbors are probably uh, living much more stoic lives than they, you know, I get to sit at a computer these days. So I'm pretty comfortable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what happens after the uh, Marines? I... Um, my wife and I went out to California because I had a fascination with mixed martial arts. You mentioned MMA earlier, and, and you know, here we go. So I, uh, I'd seen a couple of the UFCs, and I, I started uh, doing a little bit of uh, martial arts uh, in Boston uh, with a guy named Bobby Giordano in uh, Belmont. And um, he was a great teacher, learned a little uh, Muay Thai. And uh, I told him, you know, Bobby, I want to fight. And he said um, that I needed to learn grappling. And he had a hookup with the Machados, who are a jiu-jitsu family. He said, you got to go out to L.A. and train with them. So I said, okay. I grabbed my wife, and we packed everything up, and we just went out to Torrance in uh, California. And I started training at the Machados and and doing um, mixed martial arts out there. Damn. Okay. So this is that, that sport. Uh, I can't watch it. I got. I get like. I get like physically. I feel physically nauseous <laughs> when I see these people <laughs> beating on each other. I'm just like, oh, it's just too much, you know. Like, how did? What's the allure of just beating? I mean, I get like, but I do get martial arts, and I think it's a. I, w- I wish I knew it, you know. So there's a part of me that understands, um, you know, how that could be something that, of interest. But then getting in that octagon and just, you know, no gloves, basically just beating the shit out of each other. Well, you know, they turned it into a uh, into a, a bona fide sport now. I mean, it's come a long way, and you know, there are, there are weight classes now. I mean, the early days of the UFC, it was um, a kind of um, circus event where you know somebody who weighs three hundred pounds could fight somebody who weighed one hundred fifty pounds. It was just anybody who was crazy enough to get in there. You know, who's the, so he- it, who's, it, the who's the heaviest guy you've ever fought? Well, you know, by the time I got into it, there were weight classes. I fought at one fifty five. Okay. And um, I, you know, so yeah, so I, I didn't have to do anything like that. And you're a good fighter. No, I, I, I suck. <laughs> but you, but you're a willing fighter. See, I suck, and I'd be terrified and would run out of the <laughs> octagon. You'll stand in there and get your ass beat. Well, I haven't really done it that much. I, let, let me put this in perspective. Um, first of all, uh, there's a very helpful movie for anybody who's a fight fan uh, or just cares about this it's called fightville and i it's on netflix i think and what it does is it's a documentary that follows the um you know fighting game at at the mma game at at the very local level down in new orleans i believe and you get to see the promoters down at the local level and the 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 gym the the guy who trains is who's the head trainer at a gym down there and you see a couple of fighters who are who are young guys, and, you know, there's a the, – the story follows really two guys at, at first. Uh, one of them is a person named Dustin Poirier. Now, uh, he's just one of the people down there at the gym, and then there's another guy who's sort of like his peer, and the two of them have both had, say, about 17 fights, and these are real MMA fights, but they're at this low local level, small shows. They're not making any kind of money. They're just young guys who enjoy fighting and are, are getting into it. And at one point, the, 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 the guy who's not Dustin 
turns to the camera. He says, you know, I'm having some family problems and I, I just, I haven't been training much lately. Things are going great for me, but I, I don't think I'm going to go back in to the gym. And he, then you see him drop out of a fight. And, uh, and, but this other guy, Dustin, he goes out and he fights again and he fights a, a harder opponent and he wins. His coach goes crazy. He arm bars a guy from Brazil who he wasn't well, supposed to it? get. What does an arm bar mean? An arm bar is a, is a joint lock where you put your entire body uh, against somebody's elbow joint. So, for example, um, uh, you, uh, you pinch their leg, their arm between your legs, and your legs are going over their head, and you're holding their wrist. And by elevating your pelvis, you straighten out their arm, and when the tension comes on and they realize they're going to get their arm broken, they tap. And so that's what happened here. <laughs> and it's, it's a standard submission move from, from, uh, from Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is a component of mixed martial arts. Right. So right. Uh, it, it's not as awful as it sounds because it's really less brutal than getting punched in the head. You know, if somebody does catch you in a submission hold like a choke or an arm lock, uh, you, can, you, know, you can give up by tapping. What if you can't tap? What if they have both of your arms? Can you, like, wiggle a foot or something? You can verbally tap. You could scream out to the ref. You could say something like, I'm tapping, you know, which does happen. You know? <laughs> that would be me. I'd be yelping. Uh, well, you and a lot of people, you know, and, and, for, um, and some people do get their arms broken, but that's, you know, in, um, you know, in real fights. And now, they, I mean? and now, women, are, yeah. now women are doing it. I, I kept seeing a commercial uh, recently for this like, reality show about women MMA fighters, and they're just – same thing. Yeah, it's hardcore. Oh, there, there's a very uh, the level of athleticism in in uh, mixed martial arts now, and it's in the UFC in particular, is much 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 higher. It's world class than much higher than it used to be. You're getting uh, Olympians in there. So, for example, one of their best one of an example of this is Ronda Rousey. She's a, a female fighter, and she's a, an Olympic uh, judo specialist. And she has been cleaning up. She's a, a world champion. Did, they, did, she she, get, did she get profiled in the New Yorker? I think she did. Okay. Or the New read, York Times I, or something. I like read, that. yeah, I read something about her. I want to say I read some long thing about her. I, that was her. Okay. So she's yeah. the one. She's the Muhammad Ali of female MMA. And she broke me. I think she broke Misha Tate's arm. She's broken a couple of people's arms, actually. <laughs> Damn, man. Okay, so you're in L.A., you're training to do this with the uh, Machado brothers. You're taking Brazilian jiu-jitsu. That's correct, yeah. Well, what belt do you got? Do you get belts? I, yeah, I, I got a blue belt. Okay. That's, the, I, that's the one after white. That's really not that good. Okay, so not that high. Pretty much everybody gets a blue belt. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I didn't. You can have one, yeah. you know, it's just it's like a couple of weeks in, maybe, you know, you sign up for six weeks. It's your consolation prize. It wasn't anything special. I'm, like I said, I, I'm not really, you know, I was saying earlier, you know, to, to give you some perspective, uh, when I saw this movie fight bill, I, you know, here's, um, this one guy who's had 18 fights and I'm going, wow, you know, that's about 18 more than I had. I, I thought like one time, really uh, with actual pro MMA rules, just once, you know, there were a lot of little smokers where you wear pads and stuff, but that's different. So this guy, uh, he's what, 18 times. I'm thinking, man, that's a real fighter. But compared to him, there's this other guy, Dustin Poirier, and he keeps going where the other guy drops out and Dustin is now in the UFC. Wow. And so that gave me a sense of how high that mountain is, you yeah. know? Yeah, and yeah, I yeah. was so, I was way, 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 way down there at the bottom at the, 
just really amateur level. And you, you said, know? and you said you fought once, like an actual MMA style fight once. You know, I working up to that. I mean, there were a lot of jujitsu competitions. There were a couple of uh, unsanctioned pancreas bouts in Wilmington, which is uh, what a pancreas fight is, is where you can go close fist to the body, but not to the head. You can only smack somebody in the head with the open hand. <laughs> just, and you can, uh, just, yeah. you can bitch slap. The bitch slap is allowed. It's, the bitch slap is allowed. <laughs> and I, I fought in Arizona in Rage in the Cage, but that was also pancreas rules. And I, that, was my, that was my good night out. I, I won by a choke on that one. And, um, yeah. then, um, but then the, the only fight that I actually did with real MMA rules was, uh, in, um, was in Super Bowl. And that was, uh, that was just the one. So I mean, I'm a, get your ass kicked. Did you win? I, uh, I lost on decision and no, it wasn't one of those classic beat downs. One of the things that makes you turn away from the TV. Thank goodness. Uh, I fought a, a real nice guy, a great guy named Abe Rodriguez. Uh, 155 pounds. He's uh, he had excellent jujitsu, and um, you know he just did more things right than me. And um, you know the the decision just went to him. Okay, so I'm just going to go out on a limb here. I think you sure. might. I think you might be uh, the the toughest and most physically capable fighter in literary fiction right now. Uh, well, I. <laughs> I think you could, I, could, I you don't think, know. You could take, That's you could, probably not even true. You could take Jonathan Franzen. I bet you could take him down. I don't know that. I don't know who that is, by the way. You don't, and, know, who, uh, you don't know who Jonathan Franzen is? The, uh, no, and he could probably hit me in the nose if he wanted to. There's such a thing as a puncher's <laughs> chance. I mean, we, we, you never know what Jonathan might do. I don't know, man. I think you, could, I think you got him. I mean, no, no offense to Jonathan, but I feel like you could take him down. I, I, you know, I've never met you in person, but I've seen pictures of you. You look a little tough. You look like you could handle yourself. I mean, it's. I mean, you've done more fighting and more training than ninety nine percent. That's an illusion. You know what I can handle is a nice bagel with cream cheese. That's what I can handle. <laughs> uh, okay, so how did you like L.A.? How long were you here? What, what, you know, what did that whole journey look like, and where did it end? I loved L.A. I, I loved it. I mean, uh, it, you know, the weather is great. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's where you know, I am. That's where I am right now. I, I don't know if you know that, but that's where I'm sitting. I'm in Los Angeles. So, are you kidding me? Really? Yeah, it's nice to hear somebody say they like L.A. Everyone hates it. Oh, they do. I, I got to ask. Why do people hate it? I don't know. People like people who have never even been here before tell you they hate Los Angeles. They have this idea about it because it's on film and on television a lot, and they sort of build up this story about it. You know how the it's a hellish, you know, moral uh, nightmare, you know, or immoral nightmare and uh, traffic, you know, whatever it is. You know, people have their ideas about it. And then I think some people just don't – I think some people just don't like the no-weather, uh, decentralized, uh, urban chaos that of Los Angeles. You know, it's it, – Oh, okay. All right. You know, because I I visited it recently. I visited over the summer, and I had a chance to drive down to Hawthorne, and the Mexican food down there smelled so good, it made me miss it really badly. Yeah. Mexican food's good here. We do have that. Yeah. So why'd you leave? What what happened? I wanted to complete college. And um, so after living in L.A. up to uh, around 2002, uh, I, I just got the itch to, I, to go back and finish college. And I looked around where I could to, to see about finishing college at other, at, at other colleges. But in order to do that, I would have had to go to school longer. 
and I got back in touch with, with my college, Harvard, and I could have just fin- and I could finish by just going for one year. So it seemed like that was the right thing to do. And so we packed up and came back east and I lived in Watertown and Massachusetts and finished my last year of college. So that's why I came back east. I forgot to ask you about Harvard. Uh, like did Don DeLillo write you like a, a recommendation letter? You must have had some badass recommendation letters like from uh, – no? I mean is that just in my imagination? I I don't think so. I I like you, Don, no, I Don DeLillo could have been like I was copying this kid when he was nine years old. Or whatever, you know? <laughs> that would have been a slam dunk. Uh, yeah. I mean that that's um that sounds great, but I don't think he. No, I'm pretty sure that didn't happen. All right, yeah, should have happened. That would have been a it could have been a gold mine for you. But I guess you got in anyway. Well, uh, that would have been good. Right. Well, maybe, you know, there's still time. Maybe he can recommend you for something else. <laughs> he I, owe, I would love that. That dude owes you. He, I, I'm convinced he owes you. Well, uh, maybe you're right. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so you finish up at Harvard. Uh, this, I, I imagine that this time around it was a, a better academic experience. There was less uh, angst and difficulty. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I just went and did uh, my very best, and uh, you know, you know, you're adult when you go back at age. I don't know, I was like 32, 33, and you know, I was married, and I had to just go in and take care of business, and you know, that's all it was. I, I lived off campus. I mean, I just went to class, worked hard, and got out. Got that was it. Okay, but you have that diploma. That's a good diploma to have, right? Oh yeah, yeah. I'm glad to have it. Definitely. You, you know, can't hurt. Right. So, okay. So then you have your Harvard diploma and like, wh- like, where do you start to think about writing? I mean, clearly you were interested in this stuff from uh, childhood, but were you always nursing literary ambition? Well, I think I started thinking about writing actually that year. Uh, when I, I went to summer school, but, uh, to, in order to finish all my credits when I went back to Harvard. And so that summer, the summer of 2003 or four, I can't remember which I, I took a class. I had to get an extra credit. And for the first time in my life, I took a creative writing class and it was, um, it was really good for me. My, the teacher encouraged me. And it just made me excited about writing. I was reading a lot of uh, Hemingway at the time, and I think that's really where um, the seed was planted. And I, that's what made me want to write my own book. Isn't that weird? I mean, how many guys does Hemingway do that for? Even still, it's amazing. Oh, tell me about it. Yeah, I know. There's nothing like it. What, yeah, nothing what, like Hemingway. What is it? What is it? I mean, it's like, I mean, does it give, I, I have this theory that it gives straight, like sensitive straight males permission to be sensitive or something. It's like, okay, I, 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 you know, do you understand what I'm saying or what I'm getting at? But, uh, or is yeah, it, I think so. I mean, or, or is it, like well, there's a, there's like a simplicity or like it, it fools you into thinking it's simple, kind of like Raymond Carver, you know, like where you're like, oh, this is something I could do. Like this is, you know, these sentences are, there, there's not a lot of big words here. You know, there's not a lot of complexity to the right, actual right, prose, right. like in terms of how it's structured, but, and then you sit down to, to try to imitate it and then you get your ass handed to you. But uh, was that it? Well, I think, I think it just showed, it made me feel how beautiful writing could be. I, because it is beautiful, simple as it is. It's, it's, it, it's beautiful. And you, and that became exciting. I, I, I just wanted to, I was, I was, I I appreciated it. Yeah, and you and then you know you do have it in your blood. You have some literary bent in your blood. I mean, uh, was there any kind of like uh, your father nudging you, or you trying to please him, or like was any of that psychology there? 
Well, um, unfortunately not. I, I, I was out of touch with my father for a long time and, uh, he was not, I was not in contact with him during this period. Um, I hadn't spoken with him since 94. So, um, no. And what happened? Just, you guys just had a butting of heads and. Well, I'm, I hate to do this to you, but I, I'm going to leave that, um, personal and we just, but I will say this, I, I am in touch with Gordon now and, uh, we have, uh, a very good relationship, and I'm I'm very grateful for his support. Now he must be so proud. Uh, he is. A, he's happy, and I'm happy to see that. Yeah, that's awesome. So, okay, yeah. so you start reading Hemingway. What's What's your favorite Hemingway? Oh, I um I was reading The Green Hills of Africa at the time. Uh, I pretty much read everything I could get my hands on. I of course I read The Sun Also Rises. I read, um, I think my favorite Hemingway might be, uh, Farewell to Arms. Yeah. That opening, that yeah. open, those opening few pages. Yeah. I, I always go back to like just when I need like to yeah, hear some music, you know, they're really well done. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So you start to, then you start to try to write your own stuff. I did. I, uh, I wrote the first story, short story that I'd written as an adult, uh, during that year. And, and yeah. Did it, was it any good? Well, I wouldn't show it now. No. Okay. okay. So it didn't get published or anything. It was just you, you completed it. Uh, yeah. You know, I tried to get it published. I tr- I sent it to the Harvard, um, I guess they have their own lit mag. And I, I my teacher said, you know, this is good enough to, to try and show. So I, I did send it to the lit mag. And, and they said, well, we want to edit it. And I, and I was busy with exams at the time, and I, I really had to do my schoolwork. And I said, well, I don't want anyone else editing it unless I can edit it, and I'm too busy to edit it. So either take it the way it is, and if you don't want to, forget it. So they forgot it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, all right. And then uh, I was reading an interview with you, and you were talking about thematic concerns, you know, that um, – that you know uh, preoccupy you and that show up in your work, and uh, you say war and crime, imprisonment, torture, lost love, and then you say my main theme is the sad woman or the woman in jeopardy, a woman who is lonely, vulnerable, and thinking of her little life. These things obsess me because they are so awful. Uh, I'm you know I guess the war and the crime and the imprisonment and torture, uh, you know based on. Uh, you know, what we've talked about can, can make some sense, but the, the theme about the sad woman or the woman in jeopardy, like, why do you think you're preoccupied with that? Well, um, you know, I hear this Guns N' Roses song in my head. I, I think it's Patience where he go, he go, he says, you know, sad woman. Uh, I, I mean, I just, those words resonate for me. Um, you know, I think, um, it's just the way I am. I think uh, I am worried about a woman feeling bad. Maybe, maybe my mom, you know, um, I'm protective like that. And, um, I don't know, you know, I just, it's just the way I feel. Yeah. I mean, there, there is something like, I mean, uh, there's plenty of sad stuff in the world. I don't know if, you know, that's no great news, but there is something uniquely sad about a, a sad woman or a woman in jeopardy. There's a vulnerability. 
I, there is. And I, you know, as a reader, I've always appreciated Robert Stone because I think he comes closest to, uh, to, to capturing what I'm, what would really, um, what upsets and is therefore compelling to me. I, uh, for example, um, in, uh, I, I think it's, um, dog soldiers. Uh, yeah, I think it's dog soldiers. He, where he talks with where, where the woman at one point is described as, okay, so the, the, the plot of dog soldiers just very basically is a, a, a woman's husband is off in Vietnam and he doesn't come back, but his friend comes back. And, uh, I think there's some smuggling of drugs going on. And, uh, so anyway, the friend is at the woman's house. Now she's not his wife. She's his buddy's wife. And the way I recall the scene, uh, there, there, it turns into she's going to give herself to him sexually. And the way Stone describes it is he describes the, the, the man being, perceiving the woman's self-immolation. The, he felt the immolation, I think is the word. That idea of a woman harming herself, uh, yielding to something that may be destructive for her, the way a female junkie might, the way somebody might, if she was to take drugs and then allow herself to do something like in Requiem for a Dream, you know, prostitute herself. Right, right. That that just is uh, something that um, uh, that's a trigger for me, I'd say. And so that's why I, um, yeah. There's something sort of sweet about that. I just, I don't know. I noticed that. That's a sweet impulse. Um, and then what about war? You know, because you have a military background and uh, you've done some fighting, you know, like what's what's the preoccupation there and what are your thoughts in terms of, I don't know, where you come down on it? Is there any way out of this for man? Like, are we just doomed to just go keep going to war over and over again? Well, um, I think my, my interest in war actually doesn't come from my the, the negligible military background and also the negligible MMA stuff that I tried. I really, that, that was just uh, a little bit of stuff that I did, but the, um, the interest in war is, is I started really with reading guns, germs and steel uh, in around 1998. Uh, and I started to think about the phenomenon of war for, for human beings. I mean, um, you know, what, what does war really mean? What does it really involve? You, you encounter this phrase time and again in the literature of war that only the dead know war. So war becomes this mystery that uh, civilians who've never experienced it uh, might want to know something about. That's how it was for me. I, I began to think, well, what, what is being, what am I not seeing here? And so I began to read the work of journalists who have experienced war and, and other people who've reported about war. So uh, that led me to read um, Robert Fisk, for example. Uh, Robert Fisk uh, is a Middle East reporter uh, who wrote for The Independent, and um, he wrote Pity the Nation. So that's about the war in Beirut. And um, he also wrote uh, The Great War for Civilization, which came out after the uh, um, Iraq and Afghanistan wars, uh, the recent ones. So I think after reading a lot of the literature about war, I began to see, uh, I, I began to get a, a, a tiny a sense of what the reality might be. And that was very intriguing. 
Uh, Chris Hedges was also a reason that I wanted to, to or was also a book that had a, a major revelation for me. He's an exact example of the type of person I wanted to read. Yeah, yeah. Do you think you'll ever write anything uh, like you know nonfiction or do any kind of war reporting? Is that something you might have an interest in? Let me tell you, I have seriously thought about that, and I've come up against my own uh, self-preservation. I've said, you know, you really want to know this. You really want to see it firsthand. Because, by the way, I'm a great believer in investigative reporting. I, I use that approach for, for, yeah, right? I, you know, nothing beats reality. Uh, it, I think it's better than fiction. And so I definitely felt like I ought to. And then I also think that it's simply a matter of luck whether you get killed or not, and I don't want to die. So I decided I don't know. Uh, that's about where I stand right now. I think it's a, I think it's a bad risk. Well, and I, was, I was, I, I was going to yeah. say it's not only a physical safety risk, but if you're in the, you know, to talk uh, some more about Chris Hedges is that, uh, and and this was uh, illustrated uh, pretty well, I think, in uh, the Hurt Locker, where that movie where they're talking about war as an addiction. You know, and I think it's an addiction not only for the soldiers who fight in it, but sometimes for the journalists who cover it. Like you can't beat that rush, you know, and, and you, yeah. you're, you're in that sort of environment and you're seeing those sorts of things and you're living a life where the stakes are that high. And then you, right. you try to return to civilian life and everything just seems really bland and there's a, a deadening effect and you want to go back mm -hmm. for more and, and, you know, more of what, you know, so it's, it's a very... I don't know. That was a very convincing argument, and, and it made me feel like I understood a little bit better why we keep doing this and why people keep wanting to do it. I, I think you're hitting the nail on the head. That is one of the – I think that is a feature of war. I do think people get addicted to it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So – and. You know, you you uh, you know, we we were talking about the sad woman or the woman in jeopardy. We talked a little bit earlier about your uh, experience working, uh, you know, low paid jobs uh, when you were growing up and living out in Queens. This stuff shows up uh, in preparation, and uh, you know, um, one of the characters, and and then also that you speak Chinese and have lived over in China. Like all of this stuff, uh, you know, for people who have read the book, well, you know, obviously will make some sense for people who haven't. Um, you know, I guess you'll find out, but, um, you know, to take on as a writer, uh, you know, a, a character of a different gender, but also a character of a different culture and to, and to work on sort of the underside of the American experience, uh, as a person who came up privileged, like that's, that's a really noble thing to do and, and a difficult thing to do, you know, but you, I guess you've had some access to, um, different ways of life and you have, uh, paid attention, <laughs> Well, I, I definitely didn't uh, set out to uh, do anything noble, and I certainly don't see myself that way, kind of you to say. But I do have a natural uh, uh, um, thing where I want to side with the underdog, and I guess I was just following that. Yeah, well, you've done it, you've done it well. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad that we get a chance to, to – feature it in the TMB book club. And, and again, I just congratulate you on the success that the books had, uh, you know, out of the gates. And, uh, I, I appreciate the time and the candor and I wish you well on whatever comes next. Well, thank you so very much for saying that, Brad, to send you. All right, there he is. That's Atticus Lish. His novel, his debut is called preparation for the next life available now from tyrant books. Uh, you got to go get that. It's red hot preparation for the next life the official November pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. 
available from Tyrant Books. You can find out more online at uh, nytyrant.com. You can also follow Atticus on Twitter uh, where his handle is at Atticus Lish. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the music as always. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Join uh, the TNB Book Club, the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Go to thenervousbreakdown.com, click on Book Club in the menu bar. Uh, may I also add that the Nervous Breakdown Book Club makes a astonishing an astonishingly good uh, holiday gift. It's the gift that keeps on giving all year round. $9.99 a month, new book delivered every month. Don't forget that this podcast has its own app, the Other People app. It's available for your iPhone. It's available for your Android. Uh, it's free, and it's the best way to listen. You get the uh, Here's how it works. You get the app onto your device, and then the most recent 50 episodes of this show will be there waiting for you free. And then if you want to sign up for premium and you want to stream the full archives, you can do that right there within the app. You can sign up for premium right there within the app. Do you see how that works? It's very easy. It's a great way to support the show. It's a great way to get access to everything. The full back catalog of interviews with a uh, litany of terrific writers. So please go get the app. I would appreciate that. Sign up for premium. I would appreciate that even more. And, uh, you know, thanks for the mail, too. If you want to email me, the address, once again, is letters at otherppl.com. Maybe I should start an advice column. Maybe this could, could become an advice show. <laughs> there, could become a, there, there could be a segment where I uh, try to give advice to listeners or to my guests. I'm sure that would go over well. Maybe I should transcribe every single episode of this podcast, all 330-something and counting. Create some insanely large document. Maybe uh, I should have someone uh, do that for me. I want, I want there to be like Brad Listy scholars. I want there to be somebody who spends their life studying this show. <laughs> uh, so maybe, yeah, maybe I can get the, uh, the young woman from Book Slut to take that on. Lauren Euler, who, uh, you know, wrote into me a while back criticizing my, uh, my monologues. I think she could be a good candidate for that. I kind of want somebody with a discerning mind, a critic's eye to parse the, uh, you know, what would surely be a uh, 5,000 page transcription. I want her to parse it and tell me who I am. Can somebody get on that? Can somebody uh, make that happen? Please remember that Emerson, Thoreau, and Hawthorne are all buried in the same cemetery in Concord, Massachusetts, and that Marshall McLuhan died of a stroke. That's it for now. Thanks once more to Atticus Lish. Thanks to uh, Giancarlo de Trapano at Tyrant Books. And uh, go get preparation for the next life. And, of course, my thanks go out to you guys, the listeners, for being here and for supporting the show week in and week out. Uh, I really do appreciate you. So uh, that's it. We're heading into Thanksgiving. I'm going to try to come up with two shows for next week. I got family coming into town. Uh, shit is happening, but I'm going to try to make it happen. We'll see. We'll see. It's a cliffhanger. <laughs>